Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are now continuing with Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. First of all, let me wish you all a very Merry Christmas, and I hope that you had a very wonderful Christmas, but of course remember that Christmas is far, far, far from over, and um, depending on how you look at it and and depending on various traditions in the Church, uh, first of all, the entire octave of Christmas is celebrated as Christmas, and then the entire period until Epiphany um, is celebrated as Christmas, you know, the 12 days of Christmas, my true love gave to me, and so forth. And uh, finally, in many traditions, the entire period until the presentation, until February 2nd, is considered the Christmas season. So we have only begun to celebrate Christmas. Um, and of course, Christmas is, is such a beautiful picture of the completion, the, the fulfillment of Judaism, the, the uh, fruition of Judaism, the full flowering of Judaism when the, when the Jewish Messiah is born in, uh, in Bethlehem, in the house of bread. And of course, that story, <laughs> that story had a very happy ending for us because it brought us our salvation, but it didn't have a very happy ending in some sense for Jesus since he ended up on the cross at Golgotha. And um, in fact, today being the day after Christmas is not only the day after Christmas, but it's also, of course, St. Stephen's feast day. So the Christmas is immediately followed the very next day with the feast day of a martyr and the celebration of a martyrdom. St. Stephen, the first martyr, he's referred to as a proto-martyr, which means essentially the first martyr. He was certainly the first Christian martyr after Christ's own death. So I want to at least begin the show by talking a little bit about St. Stephen. Uh, St. Stephen is, of course, also a very interesting martyr from the perspective of the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic Church and uh, perhaps a little bit of a favored martyr for me as a Jew in the Catholic Church, since he was definitely a Jew in the Catholic Church, so to speak. Although technically, perhaps, um, yes, I think he was a Jew in the Catholic Church, because, of course, it was after Pentecost, so he was already, it already was the Catholic Church. Um, but he was also martyred by the Jews for bringing Jews into the Catholic Church. So that should really make him a, a kind of a special hero for uh, all of us Jews in the Catholic Church who are trying to bring our co-religionists into the fullness of Judaism, which is the Catholic Church. So I suppose talking about St. Uh, Stephen is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about the fact that, in fact, the Catholic Church is post-Messianic Judaism, that the Catholic Church is what Judaism was in some sense all about. It certainly was what Judaism was intended to bring about after the coming of the Jewish Messiah. So let me just begin today's show by reading the story of St. Stephen, 
The story of his martyrdom, of course, occurs in the book of Acts. And I will start reading with chapter 6. And um, I will probably interrupt myself to do some exposition of um, what things look like to me from the account, from the narrative. And let me, before I launch into that, uh, just remind everybody that this is a live call-in show. Be very happy to take calls today. Um, and the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. So again, 866-333-6279. And I'll begin the show certainly talking about St. Stephen and probably go on in the second half of the show talking about divine providence and how divine providence is in itself reflected in the story of the birth of Jesus. But uh, beginning with Acts 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here you have already the various early, the very earliest days of the church. Uh, if you forgive the expression, one could say, you know, before Jesus's body was even cold in the grave. But of course, it had long since left the grave and was rejoicing in heaven. But not long, I mean, just in the very, very, very first days of the church, we already see tensions, conflicts, schisms arising, so to speak, uh, cliques within the church, uh, contesting with other cliques within the church. I suppose that the more things change, the more they stay the same, as the old expression goes. But in this case, the cliques or, or sects within the church that are at issue are the Jews in the church and the non-Jews in the church or the Greeks in the church or the Hellenists. So what we see is at the very birth of the church, since the church was originally Jewish and the original disciples were all Jews, they probably thought that they had a premier place in the church and they were in charge of the distribution of alms to widows um, and the, they were discriminating against the non-Jewish widows in the church or the Hellenist widows in the church. So that's what it means when it says the Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Because, of course, in the early church, people threw in uh, into a common pot all of their wealth and all of their income, which was then used to support the church and to support the uh, poor in the church who needed support. Continuing, so the twelve summoned the body of disciples, as of course the twelve apostles, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole multitude. There is no shame in this, of course, right? There's no elitism in this. It's always been the case in, in the church. We're all part of the body of Christ, and we're all different parts of the body of Christ. And we have priests whose, whose function is to 
give us the sacraments and to teach us. We have prophets who have their function. We have teachers who have their function. We have mothers who have their function. We have fathers who have their function. We have we have um, sewer workers who have their function. And there is nothing intrinsically superior or inferior to one or another function. Uh, we all have our place in the church that is ideally ordained by God. And our salvation, our sanctification and salvation, flow from our proper fulfillment of our duties. And those duties differ among the different members of the church. So quite reasonably, the apostles' duty is primarily to spread the faith, and therefore it was not fitting for them to be allocating the resources and distributing alms and deciding who gets what. So they chose, as they say, um, therefore, um, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they did. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So I will point out something else, which is, that there is no greater glory, so to speak, in the church than that of martyr. Um, they have a very high place in heaven. You, we see this in the book of Revelation when we see the martyrs whose, whose uh, robes were washed in blood, you know, um, praising God at the, uh, at the foot of the Lamb and so forth. And the very first martyr who the very first man who received this honor of being a martyr was in fact a, I don't want to say lowly, but was not one of the apostles, but was somebody chosen for a lower duty, a lower task in some sense. Anyway, so um, these men, they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, when they say a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith, they're not talking about a great many of the Catholic priests, needless to say. Um, probably at this time, there were no Catholic priests other than the apostles themselves. They were talking about the Jewish priests. And in fact, this is kind of interesting, a great a great many of the Jewish priests were obedient to the faith. In other words, were in the church, had entered the church. Um, uh, Father John Newhouse, he's passed away now, but he was a very notable scholar. He claimed that five million of the Jews uh, in the Middle East, uh, in the period shortly after the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, entered the church. That in fact, a huge number of Jews entered the church. And the only reason we're not aware of that is because essentially once they enter the church, they disappear from the, you could say, census of Jews, you know, from the count of Jews that we have. So by definition, by definition, um, everyone who still thought of as a Jew is somebody who has not entered the church. 
But this kind of suggests otherwise, right? A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This might be because the priests were the more religious, at least ideally, and the more focused on God, and perhaps even the more likely to be, in some sense, in a state of grace. In other words, that they paid more attention to sin and to um, being obedient to God and to following God's word. And it would be nice to think that because, of course, we have the picture from the New Testament primarily of the uh, Jewish hierarchy at the time being the villains of the peace. Of course, we know that's true, the chief priests and and the Pharisees and Caiaphas and so forth, crawling for Jesus's crucifixion. But maybe, dare I say it, it might be a little bit like today where, where whenever you have a hierarchy, the people higher up in the hierarchy tend to be the uh, politicians, the um, people who are full of themselves, the people who are abusing their positions of power, and the people at the bottom of the hierarchy. And, and priests were not necessarily anyone special, right? They were priests by virtue of their lineage, of, of what family they were born into. So perhaps the hoi polloi of the, uh, of the priests, so to speak, the the ordinary daily parish parochial vicar, so to speak, in those days, maybe they did live up to their promise and, and uh, by and large became followers of Jesus. In any case, it would be nice to think that, and it's not unreasonable, given this statement, that a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. They probably were not the high priests. They probably were the lowly priests. And perhaps we see something a little bit similar to that today. Anyway, continuing, I'm now um, reading from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 6. Verse, I've gotten up to verse 8. I'm talking about the saint of the day, Saint Stephen, the proto-martyr, the first martyr. And Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia arose and disputed with Stephen. So, of course, Stephen was making inroads, so to speak, among the Jews, was, was preaching the gospel to and being very effective preaching the gospel to Jews. And, in fact, he um, also did great signs and wonders. And just as Jesus did, you know, Jesus used his performance of miracles to give credibility to his preaching, to his claims. And uh, that's always been the case in the church. Uh, even in our day, right? We can think of Padre Pio. Uh, we can think of Mother Teresa of Calcutta and so forth. And God does use, do use signs and wonders to, at times, um, uh, amplify the evangelizing power of uh, saints, so to speak, and uh, evangelists. Of course, God is not the only one who um, can, how can I put this? Uh, signs and wonders are not a guarantee that God is behind them. Because we know that the enemy of man's salvation can also enable his servants to uh, counterfeit or to do some sorts of signs and wonders to lead people astray. So I'm not endorsing it as a, 
as a gold standard. But in any case, God clearly was using it in this case. And in any case, these uh, members of the synagogue could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they then secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they basically made up nasty lies about him, accusing him of blasphemy to get him in trouble. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same, because we certainly see a lot of that going on today, both within the church and outside of the church. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now this is reminiscent, a little bit reminiscent, of Jesus' condemnation. Because in fact, if you remember, when Jesus was condemned by Caiaphas, Caiaphas never even addressed the issue of whether Jesus was the Messiah. He said, what, what need do we have of witnesses? This man blasphemes because he basically said he was the Messiah, or rather he said he was the Son of God. Now, if he was in fact the Son of God, he wasn't blaspheming by saying he was the Son of God. So to condemn him for blaspheming, for saying, I am the Son of God, one should first establish that he's in fact not the Son of God. So, but that was not even addressed. Um, and uh, similarly, here we have that uh, St. Stephen is accused of blasphemy because he's saying that Jesus of Nazareth would change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Yes, but the Messiah was supposed to change the customs which Jesus delivered to us. In fact, there is speculation in the Talmud, which is the Jewish oral tradition, about whether non-kosher foods would be non-kosher after the coming of the Messiah. And the apparent conclusion in the Jewish oral tradition is that after the coming of the Messiah, pigs will be kosher. You can eat pork. So the Jews certainly were in a position to be aware that if, in fact, Jesus was the Messiah, then it made sense that he should change the customs. But they didn't even ask that when, when Stephen essentially alluded to that. I hope that didn't go by too fast. But it's kind of parallel that nobody is concerned with whether it's true or not that Jesus was the Messiah. They just are assuming that it isn't and then blaming him for saying it, blaming Jesus for saying it, and blaming St. Stephen for saying it. And it's hard these days to not get political, but I, I, I don't want to get overtly political, but we're seeing, we're seeing literally today and yesterday and the day before somebody being condemned for saying that something took place without whether or not it took place, being even evaluated. The crime is saying it took place. Now, obviously, if it did take place, there's no crime in saying it took place. But how dare he say it took place? Well, why don't you look at whether or not it did take place before you condemn him for saying it took place? That is true of um, <laughs> somebody 
very, very close to us in our, in our political world today. But anyway, back to uh, 2,000 years ago. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, is this so? So the high priest is accusing St. Stephen of saying that essentially Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism and the Jewish Messiah. So now Stephen goes into his defense, which isn't really a defense. It's really, um, in, I don't want to say it's a counterattack, but it's an unveiling of the perfidy of the, uh, what the Jewish authorities are doing in his condemnation, essentially. And Stephen does it. It's very beautiful from a, from a Jewish Catholic perspective because what Stephen does is he goes through the entire story of Judaism, the entire history of Judaism from Abraham, who of course was the founder of Judaism, so to speak, the, the first Jew, or the, I don't want to get bogged down in that, but certainly the, the, the father of Judaism, all the way to Jesus. And he shows the continuity and he shows how everything in, in the story of Judaism just simply led up to Jesus. So I will go through that now. By the way, uh, I am, I do tend to talk a lot when I start talking, but the intention is for this to be a call-in program. So please, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And uh, anytime you like, uh, call, and I'll keep my eyes on the call board, and I'm happy to take your call. But so now we're at chapter 7 of the book of Acts, and Stephen is going into his um, uh, history of Judaism in a nutshell. Brethren and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Depart from your land and from your kindred and go into the land which I will show you. Now, let me point out two things. That one is that Stephen is not only starting with the father of Judaism, Abraham, but he's actually starting with Abraham before he was even Jewish, before Abraham was Jewish, when Abraham was still a pagan, when he was still in the land of Mesopotamia, um, when God first called him, before he gave him the covenant. So St. Stephen is, is um, starting actually starting before the inception of Judaism, before the creation of Judaism, so to speak, with Abraham in his pagan, I don't want to say incarnation, because that's really pagan, but in his pagan um, uh, origins. Uh, the other thing is, of course, he's saying, our father Abraham, so St. Stephen is saying, uh, well, he doesn't actually have to be emphasizing to the, these people that he is as much a Jew as them because it would never occur to them that he wasn't as much a Jew to them as they are. It's actually, how can I put this? Um, it's actually a new thought that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're no longer, you're not a Jew. Um, in, in the days of the early church, there was no question 
that the Jewish followers of Jesus were Jews. In fact, that is, um, uh, to a large extent, that's what got them in trouble with the authorities because, of course, the Jewish authorities would not care if a non-Jew who's already kind of a pagan became a follower of Jesus. But for a Jew to leave Judaism, that, and for a Jew to, to inspire other Jews to leave, leave Judaism, that was kind of the unforgivable sin. Anyway, so God appeared to our father Abraham and said to him, Depart from your land and from your kindred and go into the land which I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans, that's of course pagan territory, and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him in possession and to his posterity after him, though he had no child. So we can see that Stephen is recapitulating the entire miraculous history of Judaism, beginning, of course, with um, God's promise to Abraham to make him the father of a great nation through his son Isaac. Um, anyway, continuing, and God spoke to this effect that his posterity would be aliens in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and ill-treat them 400 years. That's, of course, the slavery of the Jews in Egypt. But I will judge the nation which they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So, speaking as a Jew, you can see why St. Stephen was, was, um, was uh, making these Jewish authorities so angry at him because he's going right to the root of Judaism, the heart of Judaism. Jewish prayer very frequently starts with God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the entire self-identity of Jews within Judaism. And St. Stephen is going right to the core and saying, you are not the heirs to that. We are the heirs to that. That the patrimony of Judaism essentially has been transferred to the church. But we'll get there more in a few moments. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him governor over Egypt and over all his household. I think, I hope we all know the story of uh, Joseph, whose brother sold him into slavery, but these are the, these are the um, core stories of Judaism that St. Stephen is laying claim to and uh, taking possession of, you know, kind of in the face of the Jewish authorities. So you can, you can just imagine the steam, you know, building in them and starting to bubble out of their ears. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent forth our fathers the second, for the, excuse me, the first time. And at the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and called him Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 souls. 
And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died himself and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So it's as though, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but it's as though at the time of the Protestant Reformation, you know, Luther went through the entire sequence of the popes up until then and said, see, they all belong to us Protestants. They're all, they're all ours. They're not all yours. If he went through all the Catholic saints and said, you think of them as Catholic saints, but really they're Protestant saints, if you see what I mean here. Uh, St. Stephen is laying claim to the heritage of Judaism. Now, um, I'm about halfway through chapter 7. I, I will get to the end of it one way or another by the end of the show. But we're at the halfway point. And um, I like very often we have a little musical break halfway through. And it is, of course, Christmas. And so I would like to play a very incredibly beautiful um, Christmas hymn that um, is being very beautifully chanted. And let me give a little backstory to the hymn, which is it's in Ukrainian. And for those of you who do not know Ukrainian, I will um, I will read the words of it, and then I will play it, chant it. Uh, my my wife uh, is Ukrainian, so that's um, it's a long story, but that's where I come to this hymn from. Um, and uh, what makes this hymn so beautiful, other than it simply being beautiful on its own merits? is it's a lullaby, it's a lullaby sung to the infant Jesus by the Blessed Virgin Mary. So you can just imagine the Blessed Virgin Mary leaning over Jesus's crib when he's a small baby and singing to him this hymn that t teaches him, teaches him about him being the savior of the world and teaches him about um, his sacrifice on Calvary that is going to end his life. So um, let me read the words of the hymn and then I play it. It's just about two or three minutes long. And by the way, um, the musical break is a very good time to call in with questions or comments. Uh, coming out of the break, I always cast an eye on the call board and see if any calls have come in. So here are the words to the hymn. In the dark night over Bethlehem, a bright star shone out, illuminating the land. The most pure virgin, the holy bride, gave birth to a son in a poor cave. Sleep, Jesus, sleep, my little one, sleep, my little star. Of your fate, my sweet little one, to you I will sing. She gently kissed and swaddled him, putting him to bed, and quietly began to sing. You will grow up, my son, a grown-up you'll become, and go out into the world, my little child. Sleep, Jesus, sleep, my little one, sleep, my little star. Of your fate, my sweet little one, to you I will sing. The love of the Lord and God's truth, the light of faith will you bring to your people. The truth will live on, the shackles of sin will be shattered, but on Golgotha will my little child die. 
Sleep, Jesus, sleep, my little one, sleep, my little star. Of your fate, my sweet little one, to you I will sing. Sleep, Jesus, sleep, my little one, sleep, my rosy blossom. On you, with hope, the entire world is watching. So that is the Blessed Virgin Mary singing that sweet lullaby, lullaby to the infant Jesus in the cradle. You're listening to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with your host, Roy Shoman. That's me. I'll be back in two or three minutes after I play that beautiful hymn. And if you wish to call in during the break or any other time, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY. you'll agree that I did not mislead you, that that was unspeakably uh, beautiful. And um, anyway, I see there are uh, 
as far as I can tell, no calls, so I will Excuse me, I, I may have um, I may have been somewhat clumsy with the um, with my little technology here. Uh, excuse me for um, perhaps uh, I don't know exactly what happened. I, I hope I I played that hymn to the end, but if I didn't, I apologize. Now, um, anyway, we were reading the uh, martyrdom of Saint Stephen. And um, St. Stephen is facing his persecutors. He is standing there about to be martyred. He's just been accused of blasphemy. And he's going through the history of the Jewish people. And um, at the time of the break, we got to where he was talking about um, Joseph having been um, sold into Egypt and then bringing uh, bringing his family in. Let me uh, continue there. Um, uh, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him governor over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt, and Canaan, and the great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent forth our fathers the first time. Second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and called to him Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five souls. And Jacob went down into Egypt. Um, anyway, and then and then goes on the story of... Um, the Pharaoh coming, who did not know the history, did not recognize the history of the Jews in Egypt, and enslaved them. He dealt uh, craftily with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they might not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and was beautiful before God, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking the Egyptian. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was giving them deliverance by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and would have reconciled them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong each other? But this man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became father of two sons. Now, why is St. Stephen going through this story? Of course, part of it is to lay claim to the history of Judaism. But the other reason is because St. Stephen is pointing out that in the entire whole history of the Jewish people, 
it's been a history of essentially infidelity to the prophets, infidelity to the men who are precursors of the Messiah, are our, 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 um, precursors, are figures of the Messiah to come, are basically precursors of Jesus. So if you stop to think about this, you've got a Joseph, who was um, Jacob's favored son. And what did his brothers do? They were jealous and they betrayed him and they sold him into slavery into Egypt. So you have that figure of the noble-hearted, favored son of Judaism, so to speak, being betrayed by his brethren, being betrayed by the ones who should be the most loyal to him. Does that sound familiar? Of course, it's the story of Jesus. Then you have the story of Moses. Who was Moses? Moses was the deliverer that God raised up to save the Jewish people. And what does his what do his fellow Jews do to him? They can basically condemn him and rat him out to the Egyptians. So he has to flee to keep from being killed by the Egyptians because while he is trying to save them, right? While he is, um, what's it say here? That um, seeing that one of the sons of Israel was being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking the Egyptian. So basically, he was standing up for his brethren. And again, the other Jews, essentially, instead of throwing themselves on his side, standing up for him and following him, they accused him and made him flee. So again, we have the same story as we have with Jesus. And then um, they continue with the story of Moses. Uh, I mean, in other words, first you have the story of Moses uh, defending the Israelite and then being accused by his fellow Israelites of, of having killed the Egyptian and having to flee. And so then Moses flees away from Egypt into the desert. Now when now I'll go back to the text. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Um, and a voice came from the bush saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled and so forth. And the Lord said to him, Take off the shoes from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the ill treatment of my people that are in Israel and heard their, excuse me, that are in Egypt and heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So Moses, of course, is the uh, prefigurement par excellence of the Messiah. Even within Jewish theology, he's understood to be a picture of the Messiah. So Moses, too, was betrayed by his brethren in Egypt. Um, this Moses, I'm going back to the text in the Acts now, this Moses whom they refused, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, God sent as both ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel that appeared to him in the bush. He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So St. Stephen is saying, look, what you did to Jesus is no surprise, because you did exactly the same thing to Moses. Moses was their first deliverer, and they condemned him. Jesus was their ultimate deliverer, and the uh, Jewish authorities condemned him. 
He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up. So St. Stephen is pointing out that your great hero Moses, who first of all you kind of condemned to death, and second of all you took advantage of him to be delivered out of Egypt, he's the one who announced the coming of Jesus. Right? Because the, the line here in Acts is, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. See, so... so this is like a, this is a second time that the Jews rejected Moses because of course after Moses freed the Jews from the Pharaoh and he goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Torah what did the Jews do they turn their back on jo on Moses and ask Aaron make us a golden calf they want to worship the gods of Egypt so the whole Saint Stephen's whole shtick is to show I'd better race to the end here because I'm not going to have time. Um, but his whole shtick is to show that time after time after time in the entire history of the Jewish people, they did exactly what they did to Jesus. And so I'll, I'll jump ahead to his final uh, recap of this history of, of Judaism that he's gone through. Uh, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So I hope you can see what what saint stephen is doing what has done here which is he's gone through the entire history of the jewish people pointing out all of the figures of deliverers that god sent the jewish people and showed how the jewish authorities so to speak rejected them time after time after time and this final time with jesus is simply a recapitulation of that aspect of the history of the Jewish people. And anyway, so as he said, which of the prophets did, did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So this is making it all the more obvious, one could say, potentially obvious to the Jews that in fact, when they turned their back on Jesus, when they condemned Jesus to death, when they cried out before Pontius Pilate, his blood be on us and on our children, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, they were acting according to type, so to speak. Um, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it, now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth against him. We can certainly see why. Um, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God 
and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together upon him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was consenting to his death. And of course, this is, this is I don't want to say this is the birth of Saul, but this is the appearance of Saul, who of course becomes the Apostle Paul, becomes the Apostle to the Gentiles, and spreads the faith, is in charge of spreading the faith throughout the Gentile world. So we see here, in a sense, we see here this beautiful recapitulation of Judaism from the beginning of Judaism to its flowering in the church, its expression in the words through the mouth of the, the proto-martyr, the first martyr. Now, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Martyrdom is what caused the church to flourish. In every age, it's the martyrs who water the soil, so to speak, with their blood and, and, and make the church fertile and reproduce and multiply. And here we have Stephen as the like crowning martyr, let's say, of um, representing Judaism. And then as his blood pours into the earth, it's fertilizing the ground under Saul and out of which springs the apostle to the Gentiles and out of which flourishes the entire Gentile church, which of course is 99.9% of the church. So this is really the story of Christmas in a sense, right? Because, um, because that is, you know, that's why I played that lullaby where the Blessed Virgin Mary is singing over the, over Jesus' cradle and um, describing how what are the words that she she uses? Um, that um, the love of the Lord and God's truth, the light of faith, will bring you to your people. The truth will live on. The shackles of sin will be shattered. But on Golgotha will my little child die. The the birth of Jesus and the birth of martyrdom and the propagation of the church through martyrdom. Are, 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 are woven together um, so, so tightly and intrinsically that one can't imagine one existing without the other. As the Blessed Virgin Mary said, Sleep, Jesus, sleep, my little one, sleep, my rosy blossom, on you with hope the entire world is watching. So that is, I guess, that kind of, um, kind of does it for today, and I can't do better than to go out with um, the lullaby Christmas hymn in Ukrainian that um, I played at the break. So I'll go out with that now, 
Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Shulman. Um, I will be back next week. I hope you uh, join me again next week. I hope you have a wonderful octave of Christmas and beginning of the Christmas season. And um, I will uh, see you next week, so to speak. Bye for now. I may have blown that. Yes, I blew that. So, so um, bear with me a moment, and I'll bring up the sound there.
Ledit jatkoon, oh yeah.